the meaning of baptism. Because what I've learned over the years as a pastor is there's probably no one thing that happens within the walls of a church that is more misunderstood than water baptism. And so even though we teach on it and talk about it, I believe that there's still some confusion as to why do we do this, what does it mean, how do we do it, and things of that nature. So I just want to try my best through the Word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit to teach you and show you what the Bible has to say so that you don't take my opinion or maybe a priest that you, that you know or, or any other minister, but that you let the Word of God form your theology, okay? So there's a story, we'll start off with this, and some of you will probably chuckle at this one, a little story that I found. It says, although Jane was raised a Methodist, she started attending a Baptist church when she moved into a new community. I think we have several folks in the church that have a story like that. One day, she was helping a group of women clean the church kitchen. She emptied the large electric coffee pot and handed it to the lady washing the dishes. The lady washing the dishes asked, can this be washed? Like everything else. No, Jane replied. This is a Methodist coffee pot. It says right on here, do not immerse. So you'll get that. If you don't get it, you will by the end of this message. If that one flew over your head, we'll grab it back here and bring it back because it will make sense in a minute. Because like I said, there's a lot of confusion about baptism and what it means and why do we do it. So I want to start off with probably one of the most important parts of this, and that is who should be baptized. You would think that doesn't sound like that would be that confusing, but we see many churches that christen children, that baptize children, that infants. We see some that, you know, baptize older adults, younger adults. Is there, is there a formula? Is there a biblical mandate when it comes to water baptism? I'm thankful that one of the distinctives, if you want to call it that, of Baptist or Southern Baptist is that we have used the term, maybe not so much in today's world, but it used to be termed a lot, believer's baptism. I think that that really clarifies who is supposed to be baptized. Because when you read the Bible, specifically when you read the New Testament, you will always find that when baptism is mentioned, It always comes after repentance and faith. It follows faith. Okay? And so let me give you, I don't want to just throw out an accusation or charge like that without backing it up. Let me give you a few scriptures. As I said, I'm going to give you a lot of these. I don't expect you to flip all over. They'll be on the screens. But jot these down so you can go back and look at them. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they what? What's that say on the screen? When they believed Philip, what was Philip doing? Preaching the good news, the gospel is what that means, about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. So they believed that. Then they were baptized, both men and women. Acts chapter 16, verse 30-34. Then he, though so we're, we're in a place called Philippi, Paul and Silas are in jail. This is the jailer who was guarding their cell, speaking after God miraculously opens the doors. Then he, the jailer, brought them out and said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So he's coming right out and saying, I need to know 
What must I do to be saved? He lobs them a softball. If ever it was an opportunity to tell them straight for, if baptism was going to save them, right here it was. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's the answer. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, put faith in Christ, and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And then what does he do? He was baptized at once. He and all his family. So there we see it again. And his family rejoices that they had believed in God. One more. Acts 18.8 Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, did what? Believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And as a result, many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. You can see, and I, we could go on and on, and if you cross-reference these, you'll find many more Scriptures that have the same pattern. Who is to be baptized? A born-again believer. Someone who has personally repented of sin and trusted Christ. Question, can a seven-day-old infant understand their sinful nature, understand the need of the Gospel, understand that Christ is their Savior, personally repent and receive Jesus Christ at seven days old? No. So that is why we don't believe that infants are candidates for baptism. Because it is after you have personally exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jackson did that. The water did not save him. Jesus saved him. But based on his profession of faith, he took the very first step of obedience, which we'll talk about in a moment, which is to follow the Lord's example, to follow Scripture's example, to be water baptized. So here's the next question that, believe it or not, comes up, and there's many disagreements on this. My little joke at the beginning illustrated that. How should we baptize? Does it really matter? Some churches like us immerse, others sprinkle, others pour water over the top of the person. Which one is right? Well, again, I think that we can debate that and have debated that, but I think ultimately the Scriptures have got to form our opinion and our practice. And if we can't back up what we're doing biblically, then I think we ought to pause and ask ourselves, is this correct? So how should we baptize? The Greek word for baptism in the New Testament is baptizo. Baptizo always meant, it was really used in secular culture, to dip a fabric into dye to change its color. So if you took a white cloth and dipped it into a purple dye, you would have to fully submerge it, immerse it into the dye. It was also a word that was used when a ship sank. Can a ship sink if it's not under the water completely? No. Completely to submerge, to plunge into the water. Here's an interesting fact for you. Many of you love and use the King James Bible, which is wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. But King James was obviously an English king, and the religion of that time was the Anglican Church of England. And so James, when he had his 1611 King James Bible translated... Probably the most literal word that could have been used was not baptize or baptism, but in fact the word immersion. But because the Church of England does not immerse, 
believers when they baptized, James personally made sure that the word baptize was used in that translation rather than to immerse. And so again, that doesn't make it a bad translation. It doesn't make it wrong. It just doesn't fully bring out the meaning by just hearing that word. Because when we say baptize, different denominations have different opinions of what that looks like. So again, are the Baptists right? Are the Methodists right? Are the Catholics right? Are the Lutherans right? Who's doing this thing right if we're all doing it differently? I'm going to present my argument again from the Bible on how we should baptize. Acts chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. So we're going to see here Philip again, who we read about earlier. And he is going to encounter a man called a eunuch. And this eunuch is traveling from Ethiopia. This eunuch is reading the Old Testament Scriptures, specifically Isaiah. And Philip comes alongside of him. He gets in the chariot. They begin to talk. He's reading and the eunuch doesn't understand. He asks, he said, how am I supposed to understand this stuff if somebody doesn't explain it to me? So Philip begins to teach him through Isaiah about the coming Messiah that was Jesus Christ. And so the, the uh, eunuch believes, we already saw the pattern, he believes, and then we pick it up here in Acts 38, uh, 8, 38 and 39. And he, the eunuch, commanded the chariot to stop. And what did they do? They went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he, Philip, baptized him. Verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way. It doesn't say that Philip reached down out of the chariot and grabbed a handful of water and sprinkled it on his face. It says they both together went down into the water and then came out together. Let me give you another one. This is Jesus' baptism himself, Matthew 3.16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him we see both of these men literally going down into the water and coming back out many of you have been here long enough to have heard me baptize quite a few folks and i always say the same thing uh when i baptized them and, and we did it this today again with jackson buried with him to rise to walk in newness of life it is a symbolic picture of what has already happened on the inside Sprinkling water on someone, pouring water on someone, I feel inadequately misrepresents what has taken place in that person's life. They have died with Jesus Christ and been raised up as a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And so we see that symbolized in the immersion of a believer and only in the immersion of a believer. So I, I am of the opinion that the Scriptures teach that immersion is what baptizo means and how others were baptized in the early church. So let me ask you this. Why do we baptize? Why is it that we baptize? Why did Jackson make that decision today to follow the Lord? He did so because he wanted to be obedient. He did so because that's what the Scriptures tell us should happen. And Jackson said, I'm going to be obedient to this. I want to do this. And I'm going to do this. So let's look again. Matthew 3, 
verses 14 through 16. Again, we see Jesus here. So pretty good example to follow, I would say. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. So here we have John the Baptist. He's been baptizing people in the Jordan River. He comes to be baptized by him. But John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, consented and baptized Jesus. Question, if baptism washes away our sins, did Jesus need to come and have sins washed away? No. So obviously he wasn't coming, he didn't view baptism as having that power over himself or anyone else. But did Jesus obey everything that the Father commanded Him to do? Did He come to do the will of the Father? And so in doing this, as Jesus says, this is to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was the obedient Son of God and He came to do everything that the Father would want Him, including to be obedient and submit to this act. showing. And this was the beginning of His public ministry. And so this kind of consummates things, gets things going, if you will, uh, with that. Let me give you another scripture about the need for us to be obedient when it comes to water baptism. Because so many people, and I, I hate to hear it, but they make a profession of faith and then they put off baptism. They put it off and put it off. And I understand that maybe you can't immediately get it done that day or even the next week. But I don't believe it's something that we ought to just delay and postpone. For reasons. It's important. Jesus did it. And here is a, what we call the Great Commission. Uh, the charge, the orders, if you will, to the church and to every true believer. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, the Bible says there, Jesus says there, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Did Jesus not teach us to be baptized? We are to teach and obey everything that Jesus commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. We baptize born-again believers by immersions as an act of obedience. Are you with me? All right, let's go on. What is this? Is this is one that really you've got to understand? You've got to get all of them are important, but this one above all matters. What is the purpose of baptism? What is the purpose of baptism? Again, are there churches that teach you must be baptized to be saved? That grace is not enough? That the work of Jesus is partial, but there needs to be something else that is done? Absolutely. There are certain denominations that teach baptism, what we would call baptismal regeneration. There are other churches that believe that grace is imparted through the act of baptism. We, again, believe that it is simply an act of obedience that is symbolic. There is nothing magical. There is no saving power, saving efficacy in the water. Again, the Scriptures teach that salvation is through Christ and His sacrifice alone. But baptism is important. It is a step of obedience. So when we think about being baptized, as I said, Jackson is already a believer. If Jackson never would have had an opportunity to be baptized and God forbid something happened to him, would he have missed heaven because he missed the water? No, absolutely not. But because God in His grace gave him 
another day to live. He said, I'm doing this, and he did that. Does that mean now that Jackson is loved by Christ more than you heathens out there that haven't been baptized yet? No. Again, God's love and grace is found in Himself, not in us. We're not worthy of His love. He gives us His love. We can't earn His love. Grace says you can have this. But Jackson isn't on the A-list now because he got baptized and those of you that are putting it off still down here somewhere. You're loved. You're forgiven. But that doesn't excuse you not taking that step of obedience. So what is the purpose? It identifies us with Jesus and it identifies us with a local body of believers. Does Jackson have to go to every 500 churches on Millville Avenue and get baptized to show his profession of faith to everybody else? No. He's connected to this local body. He and his family have decided that this local church is where they want to belong and serve. And so he made his public testimony before you all. You are all witnesses of his obedience and his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did that to show you what has happened in his life. And he is identified with Jesus. Let me give you a, another scripture where the word baptism is used. And it has a secondary meaning, not necessarily just to immerse, but through this idea of identity, being identified with someone. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.2. It says there, remember, he's leading all these people, probably 2 million plus with women and children, out of Egypt to the Red Sea into the Promised Land, or to the border of the Promised Land, at least with Moses before the next generation would lead in. 1 Corinthians 10.2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What is that saying? Does that mean that Moses went out and baptized two million people? No, the word baptism is speaking of an identity. Moses was the leader. He was the man of God called to lead them out of Egypt. And he took the first step and many followed. Christ is the first fruits. He took the step of obedience. We follow Him. We believe in Him. We're identified with Him. And baptism is a way of us showing that to the world. I found a quote by one of the, the commentators that I, I use. And I think this is really important for us to understand. He said, in the days of the early church, they had no decision cards. We didn't, they didn't ask somebody to come forward and fill out a card if they made a profession of faith. He says there were no altar calls, no raising of hands if you wanted to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He says it was by baptism that one was identified with Christ as a Christian. That was the way that the early church and early believers showed that they were serious and were following Christ as a Christian. It wasn't standing up front and signing a card, making a verbal profession in front of the body. It was through that act. That symbolic act, there was no doubt if you were going to take that step, especially at that time in culture, you were serious. You were going to live for Jesus. That is why we baptize. Here's one that comes up a lot of times. And again, Baptists are probably exclusive in this. Uh, if you go back in church history, there is a group that you may or may not have heard of called the Anabaptist. That literally means rebaptizers. And so as the Reformation was going on, many were coming out of Catholicism. They'd been sprinkled uh, as infants. And so Anabaptists believed in believer's baptism, as the Scripture teaches. And so they were rebaptizing people who had been sprinkled as babies. And so they got the name Anabaptist. 
But that question comes up a lot of times. What if you are a believer who transfers from one church to another? Or even more specifically, from another denomination to, a, to this one? What do we do in that circumstance? Um, we receive here at this church members by primarily three different ways. By profession of faith, a new believer as Jackson was. Sometimes people come and they say, I want to move my letter. Every church has a list of their members with a letter that basically says so-and-so is a member in good standing of this church. If someone moves from one to another, we send for that letter. So their letter is transferred from this church to this church. And if no letter exists, maybe you belong to a church a long time ago and it's went under or completely changed, they don't have any records, we just take you by statement. Yes, I am a born-again believer. I've been baptized by water, uh, by immersion. I believe, you know, the statement of faith. I'm, I'm in agreement with your doctrine here and I would like to be received. And so we take people by statement. Those are the three ways that most churches receive members. But why do we ask people to be rebaptized? Well, we ask for two reasons primarily. Maybe three. We ask, number one, uh, if you come from a church that has serious disagreements or differences in your doctrine. Let me give you an example of that. If someone came to this church from, say, the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ believes that baptism is part of the salvation process. Some older ones, and maybe some still today, would go to such extremes to say, if you are not baptized by a Church of Christ preacher, your baptism was invalid. And so they equate baptism with part of the salvation process. And so I'm not saying that your baptism was invalid. I'm saying if you believed that, if you believed that the water baptism is what saved you, and then you come here and I'm telling you it's by grace through faith that you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ alone, it can't be both. Right? And if that faith that you said you had was in the water and not Christ, you weren't born again. You weren't saved. And so you would need to be baptized now as a true believer if you've trusted Christ. So that's an example. Obviously, if you came out of a, a cultic background like Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism, where we're not even talking about the same Jesus, we're not talking about the same gospel, it doesn't matter how many times you were baptized there, you would definitely need to be rebaptized here as a true believer. So those are examples why we might ask someone to be baptized Again, if you were baptized as a baby, again, it's believer's baptism. I grew up Catholic. I was christened as a baby. That baptism meant nothing for me. It may have meant something to my family at that time, but it meant nothing to me. It meant nothing to Jesus Christ because I was not professing any personal faith. I had not turned from my sins and followed Him in obedience. I was just a, a submissive object that was partaking in what my parents felt was right at that time not faulting them for that. Just saying that when it comes to biblical baptism, I made the decision on January 2nd of the year 2000 that I as a new believer wanted to be baptized and I was at Richmond Road Baptist Church with my wife. One of the best days of my life. And so let me give you a scripture where we do see rebaptism taking place in the Bible. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. says there, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, so Apollos is a new believer, followed, uh, he, he has been following the Lord Jesus Christ for a short time. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then he asked them a second question. Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John. John the Baptist, he baptized us. 
John was baptizing as the final Old Testament prophet. He was baptizing them as a coming, as a forerunner of Christ, the coming kingdom. He was baptizing them into repentance to turn from their old ways, to turn from the legalistic covenant of the law, and to trust Jesus Christ. So what happens here? He says, Paul says, John's baptism, or John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they had been baptized by John. Now they are rebaptized because Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And they have trusted Him. So that's examples, I believe, where biblically we can and should require another baptism. But if you've been baptized in a different church, you by no means have to get rebaptized every time that you decide to go somewhere else as long as things line up in the church and their bylaws and the Scriptures are in agreement. So let me close with this. This is the most important issue, the one that probably people confuse the most. Must I be baptized to be saved? Do I have to be baptized to be saved? Again, I already told you that the Church of Christ would answer yes to that. They would say, yes, you do need to be uh, baptized to be saved. Let me ask you another question. Maybe this is hard to answer. But if you had to give me two people mentioned in the New Testament that you would consider the greatest men in the Scriptures, who would you say? Jesus? Don't be afraid. You can shout it out. We're not going to X you like Family Feud if you're wrong. Jesus is a good answer. We'll put that number one. What's number two? Apostle Paul. I heard a couple others, and, and those are great answers too. But I'm thinking, just by sheer volume of what was written, Paul and Jesus contain the majority of the New Testament text, right? So they are definitely two that we could say are some of the greatest men in the New Testament. If baptism saved, is this a fair statement? If baptism was required for salvation, don't you think that Jesus and or Paul would have certainly mentioned it at least once? Don't you think if baptism was required that Jesus and Paul would have been out there baptizing everybody they could? I think so. John 4, verses 1 through 2. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John too, than John, rather, uh, although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples. Certainly Jesus would have been out there leading the way, showing them, telling them how important this was if baptism was a part of or necessary for salvation. Here's the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. That doesn't sound like a statement that he or I or any other believer would make if baptism was necessary to save you. He would probably be on his knees saying, God, give me more to baptize. That's the way that Paul spoke when it came to preaching the gospel. And so if that's how he considered preaching the gospel, which he said was the power of God unto salvation... If baptism was required, I believe he would have said something similar. But he doesn't. Uh, and so we see those two mentions there. The Bible mentions belief and baptism in Scripture because in the early church it wasn't a question, guys. We have changed a lot in 2,000 years. And now people have to be persuaded and pushed to get baptized. That wasn't even a question in New Testament times, in early church times. It just followed one after the other. You got saved, you were getting baptized. 
doesn't mean that the, the latter was required for salvation. It was just a natural pattern. And if it's a natural pattern in Scripture, it should still be a natural pattern for us today. So I encourage you, if you've never taken that step of obedience and you are a true believer, that you should consider as soon as possible to take that step. Unite yourself with the local church. Get busy serving God and take that step of obedience. But the Bible teaches clearly baptism is important, but it is not required for salvation. It cannot save you. No matter how many times I dunked Jackson, no matter how long Patty wanted me to hold him under there, I could not hold him under there long enough to wash away his sins. Because the dirt is not on the outside, our dirt is on the inside. It's our sin that corrupts us. It's our hearts that are wicked, and then we can't wash ourselves in water enough to fix that. But the blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, cleanses us from all sin, from all unrighteousness. And it is through His sacrifice, His shedding of blood, that we are washed clean. By His wounds, by His stripes, we have been healed. Isaiah says that uh, our sins are like crimson, but He makes us white as snow. So let me give you a few more Scriptures and we'll close out here. Salvation is only, only, only in Jesus Christ. And it can only be received by faith. By faith alone receives that great gift that Jesus gave us. Let's go back to that Philippian jailer that we read about in Acts 16. He brought them out. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Right there, black and white, point blank, as easy as it can be asked. How do I get saved? Their answer, believe. Pistis, to exercise faith, is what that means in the Greek. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. A lot of times, I think people get faith confused. They, they don't quite understand what it means. For most of you, when you came in this morning, you noticed that we've got chairs now. And I watched some of you come in. Some of you traditionalists still flock to the pews. And so that's okay. We understand that this is a transition, that uh, this takes a little while. And we actually left the pews for a few weeks. That way we'd please everybody. So, you know, eventually... No, I'm just kidding. We didn't do that. They weren't able to get them all this week. That's why we got them left. But here's the thing. What I did, what I didn't see any of you do when you came in... I saw none of you pick up those chairs, flip them upside down, check on the manufacturer, make sure the screws are all tight, give it a feel before you sat down. Every single one of you came in and sat. Why? Because you saw that chair, it's created for you to sit in, it's designed to hold you, and you believed that it would do what it was created to do. That's faith. That's trust. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father by me, when you trust Him, He said, that's why I came. That's who I am. And when you trust Him to do exactly what He said He would do, that is faith, my friends. And that is what He told the Philippian jailer to do. Believe. Trust. Have faith in the Lord Jesus. That is the way of salvation. Let me give you two more and we'll close. 1 Corinthians 1.17 Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He said it's the cross that has the power. I used to love to listen to Billy Graham because I never heard anybody preach so powerfully about the cross. 
He never, ever, ever failed to mention the cross in any mention. A lot of people today don't like to talk about the cross. They don't like to talk about the blood. They want to talk uplifting and encouraging and me-centered sermons. And I think there's a time and a place for some of that. But may we never get tired of the old rugged cross. May we never forget the sacrifice on that cross that Christ did for us. The cross is where love and justice intersected. God's love for us was shown. God's wrath on sin was shown on one person. The Lord Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You all know this one. For by grace, a free gift, you have been saved through faith that trust. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. You can work your whole life and many people do. You can volunteer for everything that the church has to offer, everything that the food pantry down the street has to offer, and die lost if you're trusting that good to outweigh your bad. The only thing that can save you is Jesus. But when Jesus saves you, you won't sit on the sidelines. We may take a break. We may catch our breath. But your life will not be defined by slothfulness and laziness and in service. If it is, there's something drastically wrong. If you have to always be persuaded and prompted and pushed and rewarded to do things for Jesus, there's something wrong. Not my opinion. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again. The Christian life is a life of obedience. It's a life of surrender. It's a life of getting out of the way and letting Jesus lead. And the first step of that is obedience. I'm asking you today, have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? I don't care if you've been baptized. I don't care what church you belong to. I'm asking you, has your faith in Christ saved you? Is the evidence that you are saved a different life? Not a perfect life, but a different life. Changed heart, changed desires, changed thinking. If you're a born-again believer, have you been obedient? What are you waiting for? What are you holding back for? I'm afraid, Pastor. I'm afraid to get in the water. I'm afraid to be in front of people. It's a fearful thing to stand, uh, to be in the hands of the living God, my friends. At some point, you've got to overcome that fear. Nobody's going to laugh at you. I'm not going to drop you. I'm not going to hold you under too long. The water's warm. I promise you, you don't need to be afraid. Get that fear out of your head and follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. If you don't want to go backwards, kneel down and we'll put you forwards. The Bible doesn't say you've got to be dumped backwards. You just go under the water. So whatever your fear is, whatever your excuse is today, follow Jesus. Follow the Spirit, what He's calling you to do today. If you're looking for a church and He's led you here, I'd love to have you here and get involved. But you've got to follow. You've got to be obedient. So I'm going to invite the praise team to come that's singing today. They're going to lead us in a hymn of invitation. And then this is your opportunity to respond. The altar is open to pray. I'm glad to pray with you. But only Jesus can change your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time, for this service.